Thank you. You may be seated. What a great privilege to be with you. Hill City, the church to be if we can find you next Sunday. My goodness, you're the church on the move. Let's go. Let's get this done. You're like the, the Hebrew children in the wilderness kind of wandering around. It's great. It's good. I love it. And then nothing I've noticed, everybody I've, I've shaken hands with or hugged this morning spills something. <laughs> Y'all are the drinkingest people I've ever seen in my life. Everybody comes in, you get your coffee, you get whatever, and it's, it's fantastic. By the way, I'm going to be at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. 1 Corinthians is found just before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. That was a joke. 1 Corinthians 3. Hey, I already feel at home. I had to tell people that I, that I told a joke. I had to tell you that. All right. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. If you want to follow the whole sermon, my whole sermon is up on my blog. Secondbaptist.org forward slash blog. You can go up there and follow this whole thing. In other words, if you want to go and eat somewhere, you can read it later. I mean, it's whatever you want to do, but it is on the blog and all in its entirety. I'd love for you to share it with us there. Well, so many of you look familiar. You know what, though? A lot of you are unfamiliar. There are a lot of people here I do not know, and you do not know me, and that's why we start new churches. That's why we do what we do. We miss you, those of you that are friends that we've known for so many years. We miss you at second. Uh, there's something about a bond between a pastor and his people that just stays there always. And so know that I miss you. I'm grateful for your elders, uh, Daniel, Brad, and Michael, and AJ. Uh, I'm probably the only guy in history that's been the pastor of all four of them. I have that distinction. And what an honor it was to send them and to send you out to start this wonderful church called Hill City. Well, I was supposed to be here two weeks ago for your first anniversary celebration, but I had a nosebleed that almost killed me. I almost died two, a few weeks ago, and I'm fine now. I'm a pint low of blood, but other than that, I'm okay. I'm, I'm a little bit weak, but I'm all right. And so uh, Pastor Daniel was gracious to me and said, let's do it a couple weeks later. And so I'm here today rather than on your actual first anniversary. And it is an honor to be here with you. I, I, I just, I do not take this lightly. This is a huge honor. And Pastor Daniel asked me, to talk about church planting, and I can do that. I've been doing that for many years now. You're a product of that. And recently, I went to Indianapolis to see several of our church plants that we have in Indianapolis, and I was so burdened about the need for church planting that I began to just do some digging and some reading again, and I came up with something new that I'd never seen before. And so today, I want to present that concept to you. You are the guinea pigs. If I do really well today, I'm going to preach a sermon all across the country, okay? We, we'll, we'll see how it goes, all right? This is brand new. This is totally new, as I want to talk to you about church planting. Well, as Baptists, as Christ followers, whenever we want to do something, it doesn't matter what it is. Whenever we decide that we want to try some experiment or some project, something new, we should always, first of all, try to find a Bible model. Is there something in the Scriptures that we can look at and we can say, well, well there's somebody that tried this and there's a way to learn. And so that's what we should be about everything, but especially about church planting. The Scriptures have to mold our thinking. And, of course, it's, it's pretty easy to say and to know who our most helpful Bible example is. It's Paul the Apostle. 
And so we're going now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul said, I planted. That's as far as we're going to get today, all right? I planted. Planted what? The church at Corinth. It was one of several churches that Paul started. He was a church planting machine. I sometimes regret that we call his journeys missionary journeys because we could have called them church planting journeys. Now, I wonder what a difference it would have made in 2,000 years of church history if we always refer to them as church planting journeys rather than missionary journeys. Paul's certainly a good model for us to follow. But, but I want to stretch the envelope a little bit farther, and here's where the new part comes in. All right, so Paul is our model, but where did Paul get the idea? Let's stretch it just a little bit farther. If Paul is going to be our Bible model, then we need to think like Paul. I've got to get inside his brain. I've got to understand what he was thinking. Why was Paul such an avid church planter? Here's what I think is the answer to the question. I believe that church planting was birthed 600 years before Paul was born. After the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., synagogues became the most important institution in Jewish life. Now, we call them synagogues. Allow me to flip-flop Old Testament and New Testament terms, understanding they are not the same. But, but you'll understand the symbolism. Basically, the synagogues were churches. And it was after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that for the first time, Jews felt it was okay to have groups, churches, technically, synagogues. And so they felt to save their heritage, since they were scattered all across what would become the Roman world, they allowed any city that had 10 Jewish men in it to establish a synagogue, or what we would now call a church. And they'd build these little buildings, and those little buildings became the center and preservation of Jewish culture. It was where they, they had school for the children. The Jews have always been very education-minded. That's where the children learned to read and write, where they were taught Israel's history and heritage. It was at the synagogues. The people would gather for their small groups. They'd get together. That's where they'd talk about theology and religion. And the synagogues were, were houses of worship. That's, that's where they'd get together. And what we would say, do church. And they did the exact same thing. For 600 years in the synagogue, they did the exact same thing. Prayer, scripture, lecture, discussion. That sounds like a Baptist church to me, all right? Prayer, scripture, lecture, discussion. Especially it sounds like a Baptist small group. And, and the synagogues were open. And so any layman that showed up one day, if he looked like he was qualified, he could speak to the synagogue. And so Jesus, Stephen, and Paul, they used this to their advantage. And the synagogue was so successful that when they came back to Jerusalem 70 years later and they rebuilt the temple, the synagogues had been so successful, they continued to let the synagogues exist in fact, when Jesus arrived, 
There were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. Somebody say, wow. 480. Now, do you want a reference point? Green County, where we are right now, has 400 churches. So when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, there were 480 of these local congregations as if God had been preparing the world for a group of people, an army of people who would have already learned that they are to establish groups, churches, if you will. And so Christianity rose on the back of the synagogues. Paul, everywhere he went, he went to a synagogue, Salamis, Antioch, uh, Damascus, Thessalonica, Berea, uh, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus are the ones I remember. Uh, everywhere he went, he went to the synagogue. And in the early days of Christianity, Christians worshipped in the synagogues. They would go to synagogue on Sabbath. They'd disagree with the Jews that were there. We believe Messiah has come. They'd say, no, Messiah has not come, but we worshipped together. That's why Paul, three times we were told in the book of Acts, that back when he was persecuting Christians, where did he go to find Christians? The Bible three times in the book of Acts says he went to the synagogues to find the Christians. Now, a little side note over here. That helps explain why Christians worship on Sunday. The, the, the scriptures nowhere command us to worship on Sunday. The, the, the fight between Christians and whether we should worship on Saturday or Sunday is, is a negotiable. It's not a nailed down thing. It's just whatever you prefer. It's, it's not totally nailed down in scripture. Because the Christians were in the synagogues on Saturday, they didn't feel like they were getting the fellowship that they needed, the encouragement and, and the, the depth of, of Christian knowledge. So they would meet with the Jews on Sunday I mean, on Saturday, but then they would meet themselves on Sunday. They'd have the Christians would meet on Sunday. So Christians were going to church on Saturday and Sunday. And what happened was when the Jews finally kicked us out, which they did after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., Jesus had commanded the Christians. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. And so in the late 60s and 70s, when the Romans came and they surrounded Jerusalem and were going to destroy it, the Christians did what Jesus said. Jesus said, flee. So they fled Jerusalem, went to the nearest city that was outside Roman's jurisdiction. It was called Pella. The Christians went to Pella, and the Jews who stayed and fought felt that was an act of treason beyond human ability to endure. So they said to the Christians, you forsook us in Jerusalem. You left us. You're out. And so that was the end of the Christians meeting with the Jews in the synagogues on Saturday. And so what did we have left? All we had left was those meetings we'd already begun on Sunday. But they kept meeting because for 600 years, that's what the people of God did. They met in groups. They had their synagogues, the churches as it were. And so the Christians just shifted from Saturday to Sunday. Now, this trait, this trait of the early believers always wanting together and, and the Jews gathering in the Old Testament is why you are here today. You must never forget that you are in church today because Paul the Apostle took the gospel from Asia to Europe. 
That is absolutely critical you understand that. If Paul had not crossed the Aegean Sea and come to Europe, there's no telling what language you would be speaking, first of all. And there's no telling what religion you would be worshiping today or whenever you'd worship. But you are here today. Hill City is in this room because Paul the Apostle came to Europe. And it's so fascinating. He was successful there because he knew that Jews always gathered in groups. So, here's what happened. On his second missionary journey, I'm sorry, church planting journey, on his second journey, he goes all the way through what is now Turkey, all the way through the heart of Turkey, and the Holy Spirit keeps saying, you can't go there. You can't go there. Paul keeps thinking, well, surely I'm supposed to go here. Nope, nope. So he keeps going west until he gets to the end of Asia. He's at the far end. He can't go any farther west. A little town called Troas. He has no idea what he's supposed to do. And then during the night, he had a vision. And in the vision, a Macedonian, Macedonia is the first province of Europe right across the Aegean Sea. A Macedonian appeared to Paul in a vision and he said, cross over to Macedonia and help us. Come, help us. So Paul, when he woke up in response to this call, he decided he would make the radical decision to leave Asia and for the first time take the gospel into Europe. And so he crosses the Aegean Sea and Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn up on Mount Olympus. They screamed out loud. They knew they were dead. That's not true, but that's good preaching. He got to the other end of the Aegean Sea, and it was 10 miles to the city of Philippi, yeah, of Philippians fame. You know the city of Philippi, very small little village. He had to go over a steep mountain to get there. That's why I think the first church in Europe was named Hill City. That's a good place to clap. Yeah, all right, good. Thank you, all right. Now, it's a very small town, and it never had 10 Jewish men in it. So he arrives in town. All right, he saw this, this, heard, saw this vision, a Macedonian call. He's got to get over there. And he says, so what am I going to do? There's not very many Jews here. There's no believers, that's for sure. So he gets to thinking, what do believers do? What do God followers do? He knew exactly what they would do. He said on the Sabbath day, he knew. If there were any Jews at all, they would gather in a group. Not only did he know they would gather in a group, he knew they would gather by a source of water because of their purification rites. So on the Sabbath day, here's, here's Paul all alone in Philippi, hoping there are some Jews in there on a hunch, which proves to be a holy one. He makes his way out one mile to the Gangetus River, and sure enough, sure enough, there were a few Jews gathered in a group because that's what God's people always do. And the result was the conversion of Lydia and the founding of the little church at Philippi. The point is, and don't miss this, the point is that God's people have always felt the need to gather in groups whether it's synagogues, which we would call churches, or whether it's small groups and homes, 
That's the way we've always been. It was in our DNA before Paul thought of it. Paul didn't think of it. He was just living out what had been the true reality for 600 years. And so all of a sudden, Christians just started doing what the Jews had done. And these synagogues, churches, and groups appeared everywhere. Boom! They were just there. And so Christians began doing what the Jews had done. What did the Christians do on the night of the resurrection? On the night of the resurrection, Sunday night, the Bible says the disciples were gathered as a group. What did they do the next Sunday night? They gathered as a group. By the Sea of Galilee, what did they do? They gathered as a group. After Jesus assembled, ascended, 120 of them, but that sounds like a church to me, 120 of them assembled, they gathered in the upper room, and they prayed for 10 days. And on the day of Pentecost, by the way, today is Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Pentecost Sunday, this is the day. At Pentecost, they gathered in one place. And then after Pentecost, what did they do? They gathered in groups in the temple and from house to house. And all that is literally from the scriptures. You can go to the blog and you can see all the references for that. And so this increased because of groups in the temple, like churches, in homes, in synagogues. Man, Christianity took off. But, but I digress. I digress. You're not focusing well enough. Come on, stay with me here. You, I, I chased a rabbit there. I digress. So he established this, this little bitty church in Philippi. So he went on to the next town. The next town was Thessalonica. Still there. You can go there. It's a huge city. Uh, Thessalonica, a lot, big tourist attraction. He went into Thessalonica. Now, and there he founded the second church in Europe. And you know what they named it? Let me, let me give you a clue again. He founded the second church in Europe. What did they name it? Second Baptist. Thank you. You didn't think I was going to put Hill City in there without putting second in there. We got, we got to be a part of it too. Now, Philippi was too small to have a congregation, I mean, a synagogue, so there was a really little thing there. But Thessalonica was a big city, and they had a synagogue, and Paul went there immediately and founded the church in Thessalonica. So, right off the bat, after he had the vision, he planted a church in Philippi and Thessalonica, and now I have come today with a very straightforward agenda. I have come to ask you, Hill City, to join this drama that's now 2,600 years old. I ask you to join the drama. I submit to you that you are now the stewards of Paul's legacy. You have no choice but to follow his lead. He is the biblical model. He's the example in 2 Thessalonians, by the way, he wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians within a year of the founding of the church of Thessalonica. It's our best source on what we should new, a new church plant should know and do. Within one year, he wrote the Thessalonican epistles, the first books of the New Testament that were written. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he's indicated that what he did at Thessalonica, he planned to do over and over again. And he said, I'm going to pray for success in other places just like I had with you. And so over and over again, that is the phrase I have come to bring to you. Now, second has a lot of flaws. 
a lot of faults and a lot of failures. I know. I've been a pastor there 21 years. I know the church better than anybody else knows it. And we have, we have our weaknesses. And I can stand here and talk about those. But today, because I was asked to talk about church planting, I want to talk to you about this issue. And I want to talk to you about the history of Second Baptist Church. And I want to challenge you as our daughter. Always remember, you are our daughter. We are the mother. I want to challenge you as the daughter to join us in this 2,600-year-old drama. Second has now started 44 churches in the last seven years, and 40 of them are still ongoing. And Hill City, you are one of them, and I plead with you to join us in this great enterprise. Now, what right does a pastor have to be so brazen as to come into some other pastor's sheep and be so bold. What right do I have? And I had to ask myself that question as I prepared this message. And, and I started asking myself, why is it okay, John, for you to stand in front of this wonderful group of people and just flat nail them to the wall on an issue that, that their own elders... They want to lead them in that area too, but why do I have the right to come? I came up with four answers to the question. If you'll bear with me now, I, I think there are four reasons why I had the right to come and talk to you like this today. Number one, because church planting is a long-term win. Boy, the church needs some wins and church planting is a long-term win. Let me tell you the rest of the story about the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica. That little bitty church that was started in Philippi, started from a small group, too small for a synagogue. The church at Philippi lasted 550 years. Unbroken, witness for Christ, 550 years. And it ended because the whole city of Philippi was destroyed by an earthquake. And the church in Thessalonica, a larger church, a stronger beginning. We started from the synagogue group. If you go to Thessalonica today, you can go see the oldest church in Europe probably. It's called the Church of Holy Wisdom. In Thessalonica, it sits on a place where there has been a church building since the 200s. The church that Paul founded in Thessalonica was the birthing of a Christian presence that has lasted from the year 51 to the year 2017. That's 1,966 years later. It's a long-term win. I don't have to go back to Paul to talk about a long-term win. 132 years ago, 132 years ago on Commercial Street, this group of people founded Second Baptist Church. 132, it's a long-term win. And church planning is still a long-term win. The statistics for new churches are incredible. After two years, 90% of new churches still exist. After three years, 80%. After four years, 70% still exist. They go from average attendance to 41, then to 56, to 73. Within four years, a new plant, church plant averages 84, which is incredible when you consider that the average church in the United States of America has 75 in attendance. So that's number one, because it's a long-term win and we need to win. But number two, I felt okay to come and challenge you 
because church planting is an immediate win. Right now, boy, the church of Thessalonica, it worked. It succeeded. Paul said to them, you, now, now remember, now this is just a few months after they were founded. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This brand new church, people in two Roman provinces were bragging on it. People were abuzz. The holy gossip was flying. I have seen this in you, Hill City. You are one of the handful of most successful church plants that we have done. Do not think you are too young to get on this on-ramp into this 2,600-year-old drama. Yes, I know you're one, week, one year and two weeks old, but you were born fully grown and fully mature. And I want to remind you, less than 10% of all the churches in the United States, less than 10% run more than 350. Less than 10%. So you are already there. You're up there. If you cannot start churches, then who, pray tell, will? Number three. Not only is it a long-term win, an immediate win, it's a kingdom win. Oh, my goodness. Do you know why I see unfamiliar faces across this room? Because church plants reach people that nothing else will. It brings people into the kingdom that established churches will never touch. And this matters to me. Uh, my daddy was a great soul winner. By the way, those of you who know my daddy, he'd be 90 in August. He's slipping away mentally. It's one of the great tragedies of my life. I thought my mother dying was bad, and it was. But watching my daddy slowly, this wonderful, precious servant of the Lord, who all of his adult life carried a soul-winning New Testament in his pocket. Always still puts it in there every day, even though he's losing his mind. Still puts his soul-winning New Testament in his pocket. He's slipping away, and it's, a, it's an awful, terrible thing as I watch his mind fade away. But my daddy was the greatest soul-winner I ever knew. Up there pretty close is your pastor, Daniel Hood. One of the greatest soul-winners I ever saw. I am not. It's always been my greatest failure is evangelism. I have borne that guilt since I was a kid because of my daddy. And then many years ago, I read a quote from the great church growth uh, leader, Peter Wagner. He's a charismatic uh, man. And Peter Wagner said, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. And that resonated in this guilty heart. Okay? I'm not a great soul winner. I understand that about myself. But I still am responsible for saving souls from hell. I still have to stand before God someday and give an answer. And if that's the best way, then I will give the rest of my ministry to that. And I have. And I'm going to. And his argument's hard to refute. Peter Wagner says it's the best method uh, for Southern Baptists, in my denomination, for Southern Baptists, established churches baptize three each year for every hundred attenders, three per hundred. New churches baptize 11 per hundred. That's three times more. So if you're going to church, you're going to plant churches, you have to love unbelievers. You just, your heart just has to be broken. 
people are going to hell faster than we can keep up with them. I fear that a universalism, a subtle universalism has, has come among us or that we somehow believe that hell has become air-conditioned. There, there seems to be no burden, no driving passion. Folks, people are damnably lost. They are going to hell. And the best way to put a block between them and everlasting damnation is to plant churches. And then finally, you've been so kind, so patient and gracious. Finally, why did I feel it was okay to come and be so bold? Because church planting is a must win. Not only long-term win, immediate win, kingdom win. It's, it's a must win. It's the seventh game of the World Series. We have to do this. The day that you had your last service at second, I told this story. I want to tell it again. One of my favorite writers of all time is Georgie Hunter. He's a Methodist who's screaming out to his own denomination, pleading with them to try to return to their biblical roots and try to return to what made Methodism great. And his desperation to talk to his own denomination, I, I've followed him and I've watched him, and I've fallen in love with Georgie Hunter III. And one of the things that Georgie Hunter says to us Southern Baptists, he says, you guys are kind of proud of the fact that your numbers are going up while our numbers are going down. He said, well, before you get too proud of your theology or your great methods or whatever you think you're doing, it makes you different from us. He said, let me remind you that the only difference between the downward trend of Methodism and the upward trend of Southern Baptists is what has happened in the new church If you take the new church plants out of Southern Baptist life, we track exactly like Methodism, down. Without new churches, we're in trouble. That tells me I live in a culture that's lost and undone. And if, if we don't plant new churches, if we don't do something, Christianity itself though, at, at, at large is going to go this way. The only hope for us to have influence in this culture, to, to have power for God, to have influence, we must, we must return to our roots. 2,006 years, 600 years of history. We must return to who we are and what we are. And through all the hardships that early Christians suffered, somehow it was in their DNA. They never even thought about it, never considered any option. They always started groups. Didn't matter whether it was a small group or a big group, a church, or whatever it was. Always. And these groups provided the setting where believers knew one another, loved one another, comforted one another when they were persecuted. They mastered the unending spiritual process of reproduction. That's who we are. As Christ followers, multiplication is who we are. We multiply disciples. We multiply groups, and we multiply churches. Hill City, I cannot tell you how proud I am of you. Yes, Daniel is right. I have been your champion. I brag on you. I talk to people about you all the time. You're one of the greatest success stories of my 50 years. I just celebrated 50 years in ministry. You're one of the greatest success stories of my 50 years in ministry. I am proud of you. And I've come today to ask you, in this one regard, like I said, we've got our problems. We, we know that. 
I want to ask you to be like your mother. Get on the on-ramp. This is 2,600 years of who we are. Don't miss this. Become the kind of church that accurately displays what a Christian church is supposed to be. All right, let me pray for you now. Our God and our Father, I stand before you in ultimate awe. And I stand before this group in a lesser awe, but awe still. I am so grateful for this day. The opportunity to walk down the halls and see the rooms. To be surprised at the number of uh, unfamiliar faces. To see old friends. I thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're doing here. I thank you for Daniel and the other elders. I thank you. I praise you. Oh, Father, would you help us to be pleasing in your sight? Help us to do the things that matter. Help us to make our church life count. Count not only for how well we're going to be doing a month from now or a year from now, but a hundred years from now. One hundred years from now. And when we're in heaven, maybe somebody will walk up to us or tell a story of how they got saved in a church that Hill City planted a hundred years earlier. I pray this. I pray this earnestly. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. You grow more precious every day. Sweet Holy Spirit, your movement within us is as tender as a breeze. And we are so grateful. And Father, unto thee, we lift our hearts and our voices. And to you, the Trinity, three in one, one in three, we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.